we have a money story. To name that is to invite tension into the room, especially in church. Number one complaint that preachers hear year in and year out. The church talks too much about money. The preacher talks too much about money. But it goes beyond church, doesn't it? I mean, think about this. Have you ever been at a, at a say, a backyard party where you're, you're grilling brats and burgers and friends and family members have come over and somebody brings up their personal finances and their income and how much they make or talk about how much they don't have or need? Does that ever happen to you or around a dinner table or at a, with a dinner party or maybe at the office over a cup of coffee with some friends talking about what they make or what they don't make? Every time... I, Twice this has happened in my life, in the 40 years of adulthood. And both times there was great tension in the room. We, you could just tell everybody, trying to send a signal to the guy who was talking, please stop. It it's brings tension into the room to talk about it. I'm using a, ser- a resource for this series of sermons called Our Money Life. It's written by two young pastors who finished seminary just a few years ago. They're insisting in this source that our money life is our spiritual life. That the way we give and the way we spend and the way that we, we, we hold on to our income is a reflection of the things that we value and care about the most. Consider this. Right after I got out of college, I had two job offers. Uh, one was to, to coach and teach uh, at a high school in San Jose. I had planned on being a, a teacher and a coach when I was in college. The other one was to be a youth director at a little church in Northern California. Well, I took the youth director job. The very first fall that we were there, the senior pastor, uh, my friend, to this day, one of my best friends, Doug Dornhecker, led something that he called every year the School of Tithing. In this School of Tithing, they would study tithing, you know, giving to the church, uh, in the sermons, in Bible studies, in Sunday school classes, in children and youth programming, in all kinds of ways. Committees and councils were all involved in this School of Tithing. The very first Sunday, I don't think it was Doug, I think it was a lay leader in the church, sort of like Bob and and Laura, who got up as part of that, that Sunday morning and asked us, if you really want to know what matters most in your life, if you really want to know the name of the God you believe in, go home after church and look at your checkbook. Would you do that, please? Well, my wife, Julie, and I, we did. We got home. By the way, uh, to those of you who are under 40, find someone older. They can explain to you what a checkbook is. (laughs) Julie and I got home and we flipped through our checks to see what we'd written checks to, and it turns out uh, the name of the God we believe in is Pizza. We ate a lot of pizza back in, the, back in the day. This is before kids. I think we probably ate more once the kids came along. But anyway, you get the idea. What we invest in, what we spend our, our money on, really tells more about what we believe, what matters the most to us. Our money story is a spiritual story. What God is trying to say through this scripture reading, and Sarah's right, that might have been the longest scripture reading in the history of First Community Church. But what God is trying to say to the Hebrew nation is, your story is a liberating one. Your story is an inviting one. Your story is a transformative one. If you can learn to look around and see what's right there on the ground around you, you'll see that you have more than enough. I'll get into this a little later in the sermon, but it's not a miracle story. It's a nature story. Theologically, we would say that it's God's way of gifting us with plenty through the gifts of creation. But so often we look at the world 
through eyes that don't see abundance, but instead see scarcity. Have you read The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist? She was a spiritual searcher here many years ago for, for one of our weekends. She's spot on in the way she names the, the issue, not only in our culture, but throughout humanity. She calls it the myth of scarcity. She claims that it's a toxic myth. It's a myth that causes us not to see the abundance of gifts that we have, but rather one that tells us to look at the world and recognize that there's not enough to go around for everybody. And that inevitably leads to the conclusion that somebody's not going to get enough. Well, that's too bad, but that's reality as long as I can get mine for myself. I'm not going to worry about you or anyone else. It's the toxic myth of scarcity. She notes also that this myth fuels our prejudices. It fuels our greed. It fuels our willingness to just be myopic as we look at the world and not see other needs that are around us and just take care of me, myself, and mine. I want you to hear some more of what she has to say. Let's put her words up on the screen. For me, and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Hold there for just a moment. Don't raise your hand. I'll raise mine, though. How many times have I thought, as I woke up, I'm still tired. I don't have enough hours in the day to get done what's before me. Have you shared that as well? She's preaching in a way that maybe we don't want to hear but need to. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. She goes on to say in her book in this same section that really, before we even get out of bed, this toxic myth of scarcity has ruined our sleep and has set us up for a day filled with fear, anxiety, and worry that we're just not ever going to have enough, that we will never finally have enough. What this story before us from the old Hebrew nation tells us is that if we'll just raise our heads, open our eyes, our hearts, our souls, and our minds, and look at what we do have, we'll find that we can give not out of fear, but out of abundance, out of joy. Consider the fullness of this story. It begins with Moses in the wilderness. He's escaped Egypt himself. He's married now. He has children. He's working for his father-in-law. It's a, a pastoral, almost genteel sort of story. Things are fine in his life, as wonderful as they could be, and yet he feels this, this, almost this tug on his soul, his heart. He starts to pay attention to it, and it turns out to be the Spirit of God, and he hears the voice of God saying, my people are in bondage. My people are in slavery. They're suffering. I want to set them free. You need to go to Egypt and be the voice, the voice of freedom. What does Moses immediately say? I, God, I, I don't have enough. I'm not a very good public speaker. 
I, I, I'm not organized. I don't have the kind of skills you really need for somebody to, to liberate an entire nation. Lord, I, I don't have enough. But still, that spirit, that tug, that pull, pulls on him, pulls on him, finally, until he just gives in and says, fine, I will go. And he stands before the Pharaoh, the most powerful politician in the world, and he proclaims those four words you know so well, let my people go. Pharaoh reacts the way tyrants then and even today reacts. That react. They, they use the muscle of their political power. They use their military. They do whatever they can to, to keep those who we call the least of these in place so they can continue to get as much as they possibly want, as much as they possibly can. Eventually, though, through some unfortunate events, Pharaoh finally gives in and says, fine, fine, go. They're set free. One last desperate attack to, to bring them back, to tear them apart, and that fails miserably. And the next thing you know, they've made it through the Red Sea. They're on the other side. They're now in the wilderness. They are free, finally. And yet they realize, as we heard this morning, you know, even in Egypt, we had a roof over our head. We were slaves. That was not great, but we had a roof over our head. We, we had food on the table. There was safety and security in the streets. Our slave masters were brutal, but we didn't go to bed at night worried about whether or not we we're going to be attacked. Out here in the wilderness, we don't have a roof. We're under the stars. We don't have enough to eat. We're under attack by wild animals and, and other cultures. This is crazy strange. We need to go back. William Bridges who is the author of the classic book on change titled Transitions, uses that very story, the Exodus story, as the foundational word for helping us understand how, how we experience change. And he argues that human beings have reacted to change and the transitions that come along with it like this since all the way back in the days of Moses. This has been typical for humanity forever. I hired him uh, several years ago to be our keynoter on a retreat that I was leading. He told me at the beginning that he was ag agnostic, that his faith, he really doesn't have faith in God. And, and I said, it's okay, you understand the Exodus story better than I do, so go ahead and present uh, all, all that you plan to do. It, it, look at the story. This wonderful change happens. They've been set free. They've given them a new chance for life, a new opportunity to move, make their way through the wilderness to the promised land, and yet they wanna go back. Bridges says that positive and negative changes always bring, always bring a sense of anxiety, fear, and worry. Negative changes, we can imagine how that works, but think about positive changes. We assume that when we're work, working toward a positive change in our life, that it's going to kind of go like this. The, the direction will go like this, uh, just a gentle, smooth climb upward. The change comes like what, perhaps? Graduating from college, getting married having a child, getting the job you've always dreamed of. And what we expect is that when that change that we've longed for finally comes, oh, everything's just going to continue to go forward. But Bridges says what happens for most of us, regardless of the culture, is that the change hits, and the next thing you know, we want to, just like those Hebrew slaves, turn back, go back to where we were before. As much as this was longed for and desired, we just, it overwhelms us with all the changes that come along with it. And so it, he calls it the chaotic circle. We go back into chaos and it feels like everything's disrupted and in disarray. That's what the Hebrew people were doing. Think about the, some of those changes. My wife, Julie, and I had a hard time uh, uh, conceiving. She suffered through a, a, a terrible miscarriage we dreamed of becoming parents, of bringing a child into this world. 
when we finally heard that she was pregnant and we got to about the fourth or fifth month, we began to celebrate and say, this is an amazing gift of God. In fact, we named our oldest son, our first child, Nathaniel, which literally means Natan is gift and El is God, a gift of God. A few weeks after he was born, we wondered about that name. Not because he was a bad kid, of course, no, no, no. But because of all those changes that came along, we couldn't just drop everything we were doing and go to a baseball game or go out to dinner or call up some friends and get together. We couldn't go to the beach. We lived in San Diego at the time. We couldn't go to the beach like we used to on a weekend and without having to take 4,000 bags of all kinds of things to take care of the kid. You can tell a first-time parent versus a parent who's had three or four kids. Have you noticed that? The first-time parents have like eight bags and it takes three people to carry all the stuff for the baby. By the time the fourth kid comes along, it's a bottle and maybe a Kleenex and that's about all there is. But do you see the point that Bridges makes? This wonderful, amazing change happens, and the next thing you know, you're longing to go back to the way things used to be. You see, this story for the Hebrews is a liberating one, an inviting one, one that says, yes, it's a new day, but now look at what is before you. For Julian and me, it was appreciating the joy of watching this boy grow up, become strong, intelligent, smart, and he's doing really well, by the way. The, 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 the old Hebrew story wants us to see that the way God works in our world is already happening in, around, and about us. Here, there, and everywhere. Now, I know, though. I know. Change is hard. It, even talking about giving as a spiritual act is something of a change for our church. In the past, we've talked a lot about budgets, and the need for income, to, to take care of them, to maintain the buildings, to sponsor new and amazing ministries. All those things are important. All those things matter. We have strong folks in place, strong lay leaders and professional staff who are overseeing all those kinds of concerns. Ultimately, though, what we, want us, what we want to understand in this season of stewardship is that yours and my willingness to give is a spiritual act, is a way of recognizing the gifts we have. To not ask for gigantic gifts, but to recognize that every gift matters. Not equal gifts, but rather equal sacrifice. It's a new way of thinking, I believe, for us. And for some, there might be that chaotic feeling of what exactly are we doing here? But the story shows us that if we can see the gifts that are already laying about us, that myth of scarcity goes away. I mentioned a moment ago that the story is not a miracle story. It's a nature story. It's a confirmation that God has already, through the gift of creation, given us enough. I read a scholar last week who talked about something called a tamarisk tree. It's in the Mideast. It has a fruit that when the fruit is pierced by a certain kind of insect, it secretes a juice that falls down to the ground in the form of a flake, sometimes in the form of a ball. And there are indigenous peoples, even to this day, who gather up these flakes around the ground. They mill it, they bake it, they turn it into bread. What do you think they call it? Manna. 
manna. There's also some, some research that shows occasionally birds as they're migrating north or south or south to north through the Mediterranean area, they will oftentimes be blown off target, be blown away from their regular path by storms on the Mediterranean Sea or in Northeast Africa. And those birds will find themselves in, in the desert, in the Middle Eastern desert. In fact, they're so exhausted from flying around that it's easy to capture them. You don't need a weapon or traps or anything. You can just crap capture them by hand. Now, does this explain the, the story of the Hebrew people and how the manna was gathered around them in the morning and the quail were there in the evening, bread in the morning, meat in the evening? It doesn't explain it at all, but it gives us an idea and a hint of what that old Hebrew storyteller, tradition says it was Moses, whoever it was, was saying to the people, saying to us, consider the gifts you have. Look how you've been blessed. And give out of those blessings. The great theologian Frederick Buechner, who died a few weeks ago, said once, where does your joy and the world's need intersect. Where, where do your gifts, whatever they may be, intersect with the needs of the world? Philip Gully in his book, Unlearning God, tells about someone in his church who discovered the joy of intersecting her gifts with the world's needs. She'd just graduated from college. She was an honor student. She'd done extraordinarily well, so well that corporations and companies were recruiting her to come in and work for them. She was a rising superstar, as we like to say about some, somebody like that. But she was carefully looking at herself and the gifts she had and the, her desire. She did want to make an income. She wanted to have enough to live on. Of course, all those things mattered. But she wasn't quite sure where her gifts and graces lined up with the world's needs until she heard that in her neighborhood, in the school district where she lived, the school district needed a bus driver for handicapped kids. They've gone through three bus drivers in a year. It's a difficult job. It's not an easy one. It takes quite a bit of, of, of work to care for those children in appropriate, appropriate ways to get them to and from, from school every single day five, days, five days a week. And yet she thought to herself, I have the kind of skills that are needed. I could do that. It had nothing to do with her degree, had nothing to do with the things she'd studied in school. It was simply she looked at herself and realized that she had what it takes. She believed and she could make a difference. Her pastor, Philip Gully, who tells the story, he said she had gifts of compassion, grace, kindness, tenacity. Sometimes you need tenacity in a situation like that. Good judgment and a great sense of humor. She spent 20 years in that role, developed deep, ongoing, lasting friendships with the young people she drove back and forth each day from home to school and back again. She gave out of her abundance. Where's the world calling you? How can you give? In what way can you contribute? What do you have that you've not noticed before that might be literally laying right at your feet? We have more than enough. Collectively in this church, we have more than enough. We've been blessed over and over again. Maybe it's time to see the world, to see our church, not through anxious, fear-filled eyes that see only scarcity, but through wide open eyes, wide open minds, wide open hearts, ready and willing to go wherever God is calling us next. Because we have more than enough.